Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Titus. We're going to look again this morning at the introduction of this letter that we began last week. Paul, of course, is writing to his young protege in the ministry, Titus, who's been left on the island of Crete uh, to appoint elders in all the churches and to help establish those those churches uh, with people who had only recently uh, been saved, given their hearts and lives to Christ. It was no easy job. It would require a huge effort, uh, and it would require great assurance on the part of Titus uh, that he was not alone, that God was with him, and that he had everything he needed to accomplish that which God had entrusted to him. And I think it's important that we understand that very thing. Uh, I believe at times we look at uh, the calling that God has placed upon our life and we think that it's too much for us. Uh, And again, if we are looking purely from a human standpoint, it is indeed too much for us. Uh, None of us is able to do what I believe God has called us to do, certainly not in our own strength, but as Paul writes In his letter to the Philippians, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so he spoke of his own uh, purpose. The, the, The driving force behind Paul's life, he says, was for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And we talked about the fact that what that meant is that Paul's life and ministry were all about evangelization of the lost. Paul gave his life, literally, uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he traveled throughout the known world of his day at great risk uh, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was ultimately imprisoned for his sharing of the gospel after suffering uh, immense sacrifice uh, and ultimately died for the cause of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, I believe, what was it that gave Paul the, the motivation? What was it that enabled him to, to carry on? Uh, I mean, you know, if Paul's story were being written today, it would be a story that we would uh, characterize as from riches to rags. I mean, Paul was a wealthy, educated Jew, a Pharisee, a respected member of society, and suddenly on one day, as he was traveling to Damascus to Uh, to persecute the church, to persecute Christians there and imprison them, God spoke to Paul. I hope he never has to speak to me this way. Knocked Paul off his horse, I believe. Blinded him for three days. But opened his heart and mind that day to the reality of who Jesus was. And forever changed the course of Paul's life. No longer would he be a respected member uh, of the Pharisees. No longer would he be uh, a wealthy, uh, articulate uh, man called upon to speak from from God's word. Uh, For the rest of his life, Paul would have to to really prove and and, and to support uh, the fact that that God had called him to preach the gospel, that God had entrusted him with this wonderful message, that his ministry was in fact from God because people knew of his reputation, they knew of his past, and everywhere he went, he was under some suspicion. Uh, And yet we can argue today that he was perhaps the most influential Christian, not only of his day, but perhaps of all 
time. But there was one thing about Paul that he writes about here in this introduction, I believe, that, that motivated him, that gave him the, the strength to carry on under, under those extremely difficult circumstances. And, and I believe what he's doing is he's sharing with Titus the secret to the success of, of any ministry, and, and through this letter to Titus, sharing with us what it is that he believes we should base our ministry upon. Uh, and it's simply this. Again, we talked about evangelization. We talked about education, all right? Uh, we talked about edification of the church. All three of these aspects, I believe, uh, could be placed under the, the, the category of making disciples. I mean, that's what the Bible calls us to do, right? The Great Commission says that we're to go into all the world and we're to make disciples. And of course, that means we share the gospel, we, we evangelize the lost, we, we see them converted to faith in Jesus Christ, and then we educate them concerning the things of the Word of God. And ultimately, as we do that, we see them built up in the faith or edified so that they in turn begin to go out and to minister to others in the same way that they were ministered to. That's, that's what Paul is calling upon Titus to do, even here in these introductory words of his letter to Titus. And he basically shares with us this, that an essential aspect of living a godly life, a life which accords with godliness, an essential aspect of pursuing the priorities of God, the evangelization of the lost, the edification of God's elect, the education of, of God's church, these things require an assurance of faith. I'm so thankful the, the, the direction that the music went today. Uh, all about the assurance of our faith in God. God, our Savior. Those very words come from this letter right here. God, our Savior. Very rarely is that combination of words used. We, we read of Jesus Christ, our Savior, but not too often of God, our Savior. Uh, but God is indeed our Savior. And that's why we can have assurance of our salvation. You know, I believe that every Christian goes through periods of time in their life where they may not have a, a real firm assurance of their salvation. Circumstances bring you to the point where you begin to, to question your ability, to question perhaps your calling, to question your gift, uh, and, and maybe even in extreme circumstances to question your salvation, to wonder if you are indeed saved. What Paul is saying here, what we're going to talk about this morning, is that if we're going to be the church, the people that God has called us to be, if we're going to accomplish the purposes for which he has brought us together, it will require of us an assurance of who we are in Jesus Christ, an assurance of salvation. The hope of eternal life is the word wording that Paul uses here in this letter. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul's assures, Paul assures the, the Ephesian church of, of his prayers, and his prayer that he assured them that he was continuing to pray for them was this, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. So this idea of assurance of our salvation, assurance that we are indeed loved by God, that we have been born again, that we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we are a part of the body of Christ even now, a part of his church, that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, indwelt by God's very presence, 
that enables us to accomplish the work that God's prepared for us and to be successful in it. And all the while, as we do this difficult job, as we, as we pursue these difficult tasks and priorities, as Titus would, would minister there on the, on the island of Crete, we are always to minister. The minute we start talking about the hope that we have in Jesus, we, we, we should always think of, 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 of our future, uh, the future that God has promised us. And it's a future of, of glory, is it not? I mean, God has promised us life with him in heaven, on the new earth, uh, living in resurrected bodies, never to be hindered again by the presence of indwelling sin, but to live in a relationship with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even with this world that he created, placed us in, in a way that we have never experienced before. So if there's one thing I want you to be certain of when you leave here today, it's that you are a Christian. That there has been a time in your life when you saw yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. And in that moment, you turned from your sin and repentance and you turned to Jesus Christ and received Him as Savior and Lord, welcoming Him into your life to take control of everything, to be your Lord, Savior. And I pray that if you've never done that, that before you leave here today, you will. You will leave here with the assurance that you belong to the Lord. You know, years ago, uh, Larry King uh, interviewed Billy Graham. Some of you may even remember watching this, this interview. And during the interview, which was quite lengthy and, and gave Billy Graham the opportunity to say a lot of wonderful things about the Bible and about Jesus Christ, it was a, it was a great interview. But during that interview, Billy King, I mean, uh, Larry King asked Billy Graham, what would be, you know, as he thought about his life, his career, his ministry, what would be the crowning achievement uh, of his long uh, time as, as, as an evangelist? Uh, and Billy didn't have to think long. He responded pretty quickly that the greatest reward for him and really for any Christian uh, is to hear the words from the lips of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, Larry King, who was a Jew, thought about that for a moment. And he said, well, Billy, he said, are you going to hear those words? And Billy Graham paused for just a moment and he said, well, I hope so. Now, I love Billy Graham. And, and God entrusted him with a wonderful ministry. And he has been a blessing to the church for all of these years. Uh, but in that moment... <laughs> After all the wonderful things that he had said, I didn't want him to say, I hope so. I wanted him to say, yes. Yes, Larry. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to hear those words. And I, not only me, but every genuinely born-again believer will hear those words. Our salvation is that secure. Our home in heaven is guaranteed. Our, our future is is in the hands of God, and he's not going to let us down. He's going to do exactly what he said he would. We can have that kind of assurance. Now, again, I am quite certain that Billy Graham answered the way he did out of humility. All right. He was a humble man in spite of all the great things that God had allowed him to accomplish. Uh, but, oh, how we need to know that our future salvation 
is secure, all right? We need to know that. And our present salvation, you know, when we speak of salvation, we've often shared from this pulpit that we can speak of salvation as something that that happened in the past. I was saved. There was a point in my life back in 1982 right here in this auditorium when God opened my eyes to the reality of my need for a Savior. And Jesus Christ saved me, made me his own that morning in February, all those years ago. There was a, a moment in time I was saved on that day. But you know what? My life has continued right on up to this very point in the present, and I can say with absolute certainty, I am saved. I've been born again. It is a reality in my life. It is what drives the course of my life. Just like for Paul, on that day, everything changed for me. The whole course of my life changed. I'm saved. And I can also say with equal confidence, not only was I saved and am I saved, but I will be saved. I don't have to wonder, and I hope if I'm ever placed in the position that Billy Graham was placed in, if somebody asked me, Brother James, will you hear those words one day as you step into the presence of God? Well done, good and faithful servant. I I pray that in that moment I'll be able to say enthusiastically, no doubt about it. Because my hearing those words isn't based upon my performance. And that's what we do, isn't it? We, we think about our own performance. We know how we live. We know how we live in spite of the fact that we've been born again. We know that we do things we shouldn't do. We know that we fail to do things that we should do. And so we think, well, I hope I'll hear those words. Let me tell you, you'll hear those words not because of anything that you do, but because of everything that God has done for you. Again, not because you're good, but because he is good. And so if we're going to be the people that God is calling us to be, if we're going to live up to the ideals that that Paul is going to express to Titus in this short letter, if we're going to, to do what God has called us to do, effectively, successfully, then then we need to just understand that it is God who has worked in our lives to bring us to faith in Christ. We are His and we will always be His and He will always be with us because that's what He's promised. And we will be able to do it, not because of our strength, but because of His. Again, we talked about the fact that He said to, to Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. Not as if, as if He was praying that those things might be a part of Titus's life or, or might be periodically something that, that Titus experienced, but He was in essence saying, Titus, these are the weapons at your disposal. These are the resources that God will entrust you with as you follow Him, as you serve Him. His grace, His unmerited favor. No matter what you do, no matter how you think you may have stumbled and fallen or failed, God loves you. We sing that song, nothing can separate us, right, from the love of God. Again, straight from Scripture, Paul says that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Christian, God loves you. God is pleased with you. The favor of God rests upon your life unconditionally, because God has chosen to do that in your life. Not because you've somehow demonstrated that you're worthy of that. Be assured of your salvation, the hope 
of eternal life. And again, as we've said so many times, eternal life is just not, is, is not only life without end. It is that. But eternal life is a, is a, it speaks of a quality of life. Eternal life is, is the life of Jesus. It's the life that Jesus gives us. Many of us would look at the life that we have today and think, I'm not sure I want to do this forever. But the life that Jesus gives is a life that we will, well, it's the life we long for. It's the life that we will live forever, and we will be so very happy to do that. So, we talked about God's men, Paul, Titus, us, last week. We're going to talk about the message that God has entrusted to us this week. So I'm going to read these verses again, uh, beginning in verse 1 of Titus, read down through verse 4, and then we're going to concentrate on verses 2 and 3 this morning as we think about the, the message of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's pray, and then we'll look together at these verses. Father, thank you today for these words of assurance, for this reminder that we are who you have declared us to be. We're, we're saints. We are those um, who through no effort of our own, but through the gracious, merciful work of Jesus Christ on the cross, have been set aside by you and for you. We're yours to do with as you will. As we emphasized last week, we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We are no longer to live for ourselves, but for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Our lives are to be so dramatically different from the lives of those who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. It should be evident in everything that we do, noticeable to anyone who comes to know us, that there's just something different about us. And Father, I pray that in that moment when that difference is recognized, you will, you will give us the boldness to preach the gospel, to tell those who have noticed that difference that it's, it's you, it's Jesus Christ, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's this gift of salvation that has changed everything, that has made me a, a new person, a new creature in Christ. So we ask you to do this work in us, Father. I pray today that we would all leave here assured that we are yours. We belong to you. We are safe. We are secure, not only now but forever. We'll give you praise and thanks for this great hope that we have in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to look at, at three things, which is not uncommon for messages that I present up here. We're going to look at the provision of salvation, all right? Salvation has been provided us, 
All right? It's nothing that we have to earn. It's nothing that we have to acquire. It is something that God has done for us. All right? It is his work from start to finish. We're also going to look at the promise of salvation. Salvation is something that was promised by God, uh, is promised by God. And then we're going to look at the proclamation or the preaching of salvation. Again, a responsibility that, that God gave to Paul, and Paul then in turn entrusted to Titus. Titus and Timothy, uh, as these young pastors, were to entrust that gift to, to others who would in turn all the way down to today, all right, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So the, the provision of salvation, that's what those words in hope of eternal life, eternal life is salvation. He could have said in hope of salvation. Uh, salvation gives us this life, this eternal life, this life of Jesus, And again, that word hope that we've talked about so many times before, it is not a word that the Bible uses, even the way that Billy Graham seemed to use it in that interview with Larry King. Uh, Billy Graham, again, humbly, and, 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 and even with some sense of doubt in his voice, said, well, I hope I will hear those words. It was as if he wasn't quite sure that he were, would. Uh, that is not a biblical use of that word hope. That word hope in the New Testament speaks of a confident assurance. Uh, we can have absolute trust, absolute faith that our life is secure in God's salvation. And so that's what we're talking about today. That's what we need in order to do what God has called us to do to serve him the way he has called us to serve him, to make the sacrifices that he will no doubt call upon us to make in the service of him and his church. So we need to live with this confident assurance, this boldness concerning our position in Christ. And it's not arrogant to say that I'm a, I'm a Christian. It's not arrogant to say that I'm a child of God, even that I'm a saint of God. Now, we have a hard time with that, don't we? We might say, I'm a Christian. We'd have a hard time probably saying, well, yeah, I'm a saint. But the reality is, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're one of God's holy ones. That's the kind of confidence that we should have in the eternal life that God has given us. Again, none of that based upon our own performance. If we keep our eyes on ourselves and how well we're doing, you know, we mentioned the Union Gospel mission and the ministry there and the success that we're having down there. And I'm so thankful that at a certain point, David Cohn decided to take over that ministry. Jay Harris, longtime member of this church, now with the Lord, used to lead a group down there every week. And Jay loved to preach the gospel. So on that second Sunday night of every month, Jay and his group would go down to the Union Gospel Mission. And inevitably, first thing in the morning on Monday morning, Jay would be at my office. And he would be so discouraged. Pastor. We preached the gospel. We shared our faith. We gave an invitation. Nobody came, or only so many people came. Jay took it as a, a personal failure when people didn't come forward to receive Christ as Savior. And Lord, and I would ask him the same questions every week. Well, Jay, did you, did you preach the gospel? Did you tell them about Jesus and the salvation that is found only in him? 
inevitably he would say he did. And I'd say, well, then you can't worry about the response of those men. Salvation is not your job. It's God's job. We're his messengers. We've been entrusted with his message. We're to go and proclaim the message of the gospel. Then God does the work of drawing men and women to himself and saving them. But it was a weekly disappointment. Uh, You know, I, I tried to even say to him, you know, Jay, we could commiserate together. I said, nobody came forward after my message Sunday morning either. Does that mean I'm just no good at preaching? That that maybe God made a mistake? That maybe I'm not supposed to be here? Certainly not supposed to be here behind this pulpit. We can't base the security of our salvation on our performance. Because we as humans will fail. But the good news is that God will never fail. He never fails. His purposes never fail. And, and it's because he's God. That's, that's really the first thing I, I want to I talk about this morning. It's because he's God. This hope of eternal life is from God. Paul says, which God who never lies, who never lies promised before the ages began. Salvation is an eternal provision. All right. We tend to think of it in time because there was a time in my life in February of 1982 when Christ saved me. So for me, that was a moment in time. But our God, the God who saved me, is an eternal God. There has never been a time when he did not exist. And his provision of salvation is also an eternal Provision. I think sometimes we don't think of it that way. We think of salvation coming perhaps with the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, but they spoke of the coming of Jesus, the coming of God's Son, uh, this boy, this child who would be born long before Jesus was ever born in that manger. God's provision of salvation is an eternal thing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have co-eternally and co-equally existed forever. As the Bible would say, from eternity past to eternity future. From eternity to eternity. God has always been, will always be. As a matter of fact, God said of himself in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the which God we're talking about right there. Our hope of eternal life should spring from our understanding of the very nature and character of God. Again, if it were up to me to save myself or even to keep myself saved, you know what? I wouldn't be. But it isn't up to me. I didn't save myself. God saved me. I'm not keeping myself saved. God is keeping me saved. And I will be saved for a glorious eternity. Not because of any power within me, but because of this one who says he is the almighty Alpha and Omega. The one who is and was and is to come. So... It is this eternal God who has provided this eternal salvation 
for his people. And let me just say this also. Uh, on the notes up there, you'll see, uh, I underline, well, maybe you won't. In my notes, I have the word which underlined under point B, an exclusive provision. Which God? You know, we live in a world where, there you go, which God? It's not on that one, it's on this one. Which God? There's only one, right? Now, I mentioned God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We serve a triune God, but our God is one God. There is no other God. As a matter of fact, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah saying this, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is the eternal word of the eternal God. Turn to me and be saved, for I'm God. In other words, I'm the only one that can save you. There is no other God. But we live in a world that wants to believe, and as a matter of fact, people have always believed, that there are a multitude of gods, that there are many ways to heaven. But the Bible expressly says that that's just not the case. There's one God. There's one way of salvation. I mean, that's what Jesus said, right? In John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There's only one way of salvation. It is our eternal God who has eternally provided for our salvation And it is an exclusive provision in the sense that there is only one way to be saved. There is no other God. There is no other Savior other than Jesus Christ. And again, that's all good news, people. And that's the news that we have been called upon to share. That's that's a part of the gospel that we are to carry into the world, to proclaim to everyone who will give us an ear, everyone who will listen. We're We're to talk about this eternal God, this eternal loving God who provided eternally for our salvation. He and he alone is able to save us to the uttermost. And then this idea of God's promise of salvation. God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and then at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which Paul had been entrusted with. God made a promise in his word. Matter of fact, the way it's described here, he made a promise before the ages began. What we need to understand is this. When God makes a promise... We can count on it, right? God's not like us. We at times make promises fully intending to keep our promise, but find ourselves not able to keep our promise. God never finds himself in that situation. When God makes a promise, he fulfills that promise. God said through Isaiah 14, or through Isaiah in in Isaiah 14, 24, he said, the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned, so it shall be. That's the kind of confidence that God speaks of himself and of his word. And that's the kind of confidence that we can have in God and his word concerning the promise of our salvation. God has promised. He's not going to let us down. He's not going to promise us and then 
fail to keep his promise. Again, I, I gave us as humans the best case scenario. We make a promise fully intending to keep that promise, maybe even working very hard to keep that promise, but still in some circumstances we fail to keep that promise. But you know, there are also many times when we make a promise and we have no intention of keeping that promise. Again, God never does that. God never lies. We have an assurance of salvation because it is God, the eternal God, the exclusive God who has given us or provided us with this salvation. He is the one who has promised us. He has spoken. And let me tell you, when God speaks, well, I'll just let Isaiah say it. Isaiah 46, 11. God says there, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Over and over and over, we find in Scripture God confirming this, this reality of His nature, this, this ability to always do what He has said. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and perhaps yours as well, is in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 which simply says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word never fails. God never fails. God's purposes never fail. So, when we think of this promise being from God, then we can know that it is an absolute certainty. The promise is assured. I, I, I almost use the word absolute. It's an absolute promise. There is no mixture of, of, of doubt or worry or concern. God made this promise and he determined by his own power, which is infinite, to accomplish the very thing that he has promised for us. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to go through life uncertain. And, and then again, I, I mentioned the fact that this promise was made, according to Paul here, before the ages began. It's an ancient promise. Uh, the triune God promised salvation in eternity past. One of the commentators that I read, well, who in the world did God make this promise to in eternity past? There were no people. There was no world. There was no Garden of Eden, no Adam and Eve. There was nobody around. Who did God make this promise to? He made it within the Godhead. He promised God the Son would one day be sent to the earth to live as a man except to live perfectly, sinlessly, that he would die on the cross for the sins of his people, that he would rise again from the dead on that third day, ascend into heaven, take his seat at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to be our intercession, our, our way to heaven. So that was a, a promise made in eternity past. Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, were not plan B, all right? God wasn't scrambling suddenly when Adam sinned in the garden. Oh, no, what do we do now? This was God's eternal 
plan, an ancient promise made within the Godhead. According to 1 Peter 1.20, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, was chosen as our Redeemer before the foundation of the world. That's another way of saying before there was anything other than the Godhead. So Jesus Christ, according to Peter, was chosen to be the Redeemer, the Lamb of God, before the foundation of the world. And then Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that we, Christians, were chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. So again, God made a promise concerning you, not just concerning His Son, but concerning you before the foundation of the world. It's pretty, I mean, you can't even quite fathom that, can you? But it's true. How, what assurance that should give us as we seek to live our lives with godliness. And then Revelation 13, 8 says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. When? Before the foundation of the world. So if Christ was chosen to be our Redeemer, if we were chosen in Christ and our names written in the Lamb's book of life all before the foundation of the world, how certain, how Assured should you be of your eternal life. Well, completely. There should be no doubts. So, it is that assurance that will undergird everything we do as we pursue the purposes and the priorities of God. Paul mentions one here that is especially important, the proclamation of the gospel. He says, at the proper time, he manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And so that brings us to this third point, the proclamation of salvation. And and the word preaching there, and why I chose proclamation for point three, is that preaching, this word for preaching, speaks of a public proclamation of the gospel. So that's what Paul is talking about here. There are times when we share the gospel uh, between a parent and a child in the privacy of our home, all right? That's not the preaching that's being spoken of here. Preaching is what we're doing here this morning. It's the public proclamation of the gospel. Paul had been called to do that. Titus had been called to do that. I've been called to do that. Perhaps you've been called to do that. We are all to share our faith. It is one of the means by which God brings men to saving faith, all right, through the public proclamation of the gospel. And, of course, it's a primary role, as Paul speaks to his young protege, his young pastor. It is a primary role of pastors and teachers in God's redemptive plan. And what Paul says about this word that came through the preaching which had been entrusted to him is that it came at the proper time. Uh, And let me just say this, God does everything at the proper time, all right? We might wonder, God, why did you wait so many years before sending Jesus Christ into the world? Why did Israel have to go through that centuries-old cycle of experiencing your prosperity, falling into lethargy and, and, and apathy and sin, and then being judged by you only to return wholeheartedly to serving the Lord, just to see that whole thing go around again? God sent Jesus Christ at the proper time. The old King James Version, right? In due time. At just the right time. It was God's time. It was the time when God had appointed. 
And at that time when God appointed it to happen, the gospel was revealed in the person and preaching of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. And, and let me just say this. Not only did Jesus Christ come at just the right time, but Jesus Christ saved you at just the right time. You know, I wonder sometimes. I was 24 years old before I became a Christian. And, and, I, and I wonder what my life would have been like or what my ministry would have been like if I had been born again at age six or seven and lived my whole life in the church, serving the Lord, honoring the Lord, memorizing His Word. But I had to start at age 24. And I became the pastor here at age 33, nine years later. I was way behind the eight ball. I couldn't wait to preach through First and Second Samuel, which we did a few years ago. You know why? Because I had never heard the story of David and Goliath. I'd read about it, but I'd never sat in a Sunday school class and had a Sunday school teach me about that little shepherd boy with his five smooth stones slaying that giant. So the first time I heard the story of David and Goliath, I was preaching it. Why did God wait? I was saved at the proper time, at just the right time, in God's time, and so were you. And, and the reality is, is that this is our time. You, you ever wonder why you weren't born 100 years ago or 200 years ago? You ever said in your heart as you watched a movie or a television show, boy, I wish I'd have been alive in those days. Or maybe you said, boy, I'm sure glad I wasn't alive in those days. This is our time. This is the proper time that God has called us to proclaim His gospel. This is it. And we've only got so much time. We need to make the best of it. So it was a timely word. And then, of course, he talks about being entrusted with the gospel. So this is an entrusted word. The word that Paul was sent to preach wasn't his own word. I, I, I mentioned that last week. The, Paul, the, 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 the word that Titus is now being entrusted to preach among the Cretan churches wasn't Titus's word. It was God's word entrusted first to Paul and now entrusted to Titus by Paul. And of course, Titus, as well as Timothy, would then be commanded to entrust that word, that message of the gospel to, to other faithful Men, Paul had been entrusted with the word of God. It was God's word, and it was simply Paul's responsibility of declaring that word. He told Timothy, this is what God has entrusted to me, and this is what God is entrusting to you. He referred to, in Timothy's letter that, uh, to the gospel as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's what's been entrusted to us, church. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And he told Timothy, he said, Timothy, guard this de the deposit entrusted to you. Um, we're to guard the gospel. We're to protect it. We're to proclaim it. And then finally, he told Timothy this. He said, whatever you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul was entrusted with the word of God. He entrusted it to Timothy, who entrusted it to other faithful men. Ultimately, it wound up right here in Mesquite, Texas. Entrusted to us now is our time to rest in the assurance of our salvation and to boldly proclaim the gospel to the lost and dying world. Pray for this church. Pray for your pastors as they do just that. Pray for yourself as you share the gospel.